Welcome to another episode of Curbside Consults, where we take a deep dive into the practice-changing research published in the New England Journal of Medicine. My name is James O'Connell, and I'm an editorial fellow at NEGM. On this episode of Curbside Consults, we are going to discuss hyperparathyroidism, everything from signs and symptoms to treatment and follow-up. To do this, we are joined by Dr. Opie Hamvik, endocrinologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital Boston, clinical educator and NEGM group education editor. Welcome, Dr. Hamvik. Thank you, James. So it's great that you can join us to discuss this topic, because I know from my own experience, hyperparathyroidism can be confusing because of primary, secondary, tertiary. And so it's really great that you can cover this for us. So to begin with a straightforward question, could you tell us what exactly is hyperparathyroidism? Hyperparathyroidism just means that the parathyroids are making high amounts of PTH, parathyroid hormone. So basically, hyperparathyroidism means that there's a high PTH level. But the main consideration is, is this a high parathyroid hormone level due to a primary problem with the parathyroid gland itself, and that is what we would call primary hyperparathyroidism? Or is the high PTH level secondary to something else that's going on? And that would usually be a condition that tends to lead to lowish calciums, and the parathyroid glands are simply responding appropriately to try to um, bring the calcium level back up again. Okay, sure. And for primary hyperparathyroidism, then how common is this? Uh, so for example, how prevalent is it in the United States? As far as endocrine conditions go, primary hyperparathyroidism is fairly common. It's not quite as common as hypothyroidism or diabetes or osteoporosis or PCOS even, but it is the main cause of high calcium in the outpatient setting. So um, they say that primary hyperparathyroidism has an incidence in the United States of about 50 per 100,000 people. So you mentioned there that primary hyperparathyroidism is due to excessive PTH release. So what causes that exactly? It's basically some condition that is causing the parathyroid glands to be abnormally overactive. And the most common conditions would either be an adenoma, which is a benign neoplastic growth of one or sometimes more than one of the glands. Or it can also be due to hyperplasia, which is where you have an increased size of all of the parathyroid glands. Exactly what's causing the adenoma to happen or the hyperplasia to happen is often unclear. There are some known predisposing mutations, but those are mostly somatic mutations. There are germline mutations too, uh, and the example is multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1, where a germline mutation can be predisposed to primary hyperparathyroidism. There are also some other risk factors that we have recognized that includes treatment with lithium, and also in terms of medications, hydrochlorothiazide or other thiazide diuretics can basically unmask very early primary hyperparathyroidism by raising the calcium level. These medications probably don't actually cause the adenoma or hyperplasia to happen in the first place, but simply unmasks um, a very mild form of primary hyperparathyroidism. When people do develop primary hyperparathyroidism, what signs and symptoms would you expect clinicians to find them having? There's some very interesting data showing that this has changed over time. So nowadays, most of the time, people have exactly zero symptoms or signs when this is diagnosed. And that is because the high calcium is picked up on routine labs obtained for whatever reason. This was not the case 50 years ago when people would present with very severe symptoms. Um, but I will say that there are still some things that we could see in patients with primary hyperparathyroidism, some symptoms. For example, osteoporosis and fractures, or a higher rate of uh, kidney stones. Sometimes the primary hyperparathyroidism has been uh, present for long enough that the hypercalcemia is 
severe enough to cause symptoms in and of itself. That would be often things such as fatigue or poor concentration. Patients often say that they have a brain fog. You can also get diabetes insipidus, so that means that you have polyuria and polydipsia. And also a multitude of GI symptoms. Uh, constipation is the most common, but patients may have other symptoms. It's pretty rare to get cardiac symptoms, although bradycardia and hypertension is on the list of things you could find in patients who have primary hyperparathyroidism with severe hypercalcemia. Well, if you do suspect primary hyperparathyroidism, um, you mentioned there checking a calcium or a parathyroid hormone, but what other laboratory studies should you do in, in the workup? The most important lab study is the calcium and the parathyroid hormone. And in order for you to diagnose primary hyperparathyroidism, you need to have a high calcium at the same time as a high parathyroid hormone or an inappropriately normal parathyroid hormone. If there is hypercalcemia, the parathyroid hormone level should really be really low. So if it is not low, that tells you that there is something going on with the parathyroids, um, and that's primary hyperparathyroidism. There is one other condition that can cause that constellation of high calcium with high PTH level, and that is a condition called familial hypocalciuric hypocalcemia. To rule this out, you need to get a urine sample and calculate the calcium-creatinine clearance ratio. And what you find is that people with this condition, which is FHH for short, have a very low urine calcium, while people who have primary hypoparathyroidism have a high urine calcium. There are other labs that you can get to that might support the diagnosis, and that includes a low phosphorus and a high 125 vitamin D level or calcitriol level. Magnesium can also sometimes be low, so those can be helpful labs to get as supportive information. And then the second set of tests that we might get would be to look for surgical indications. And when it comes to lab studies, that includes looking at the renal function, so a creatinine, and also to obtain a 24-hour urine collection to assess whether this patient is at high risk of kidney stones. What I always recall about uh, endocrine disorders is that you biochemically confirm that there is a disorder first before you move on to imaging studies to localize where the disorder is anatomically. So what kind of imaging studies are needed in the workup of primary hyperparathyroidism? I'm glad that you mentioned the need for a biochemical diagnosis first, James, because that is really crucial. Once you've made that biochemical diagnosis, you do want to localize the lesion if you can. And that usually initially includes a neck ultrasound. The neck ultrasound allows you firstly to look for a parathyroid adenoma, or sometimes you might see hyperplasia of all of the glands. And the neck ultrasound also allows you to rule out any concurrent thyroid nodules or thyroid cancer that you might want to address in one operation as opposed to leaving behind a lot of scar tissue after a parathyroid operation that might become a problem if they need a thyroid procedure in the future. Sometimes you don't see anything on the thyroid ultrasound, and nowadays the next imaging of choice is usually a so-called 4D CT, which is basically a CT scan with contrast obtained at different time points, and that helps identify the adenoma. We used to do nuclear medicine scans. Those have fallen out of favor if the CT scan is available. But it's still true what people say that the best way to locate the parathyroid gland that's abnormal is to locate a good surgeon who has done a lot of these surgeries because very often, or somewhat often, the gland is not seen on any imaging and not until a surgical procedure. I think while we're talking about imaging, I will also mention that all patients should get bone densitometry performed with a dual energy absorptiometry scan or DEXA scan. 
And we specifically ask for not just the usual spine and hip in this scenario. We also look at the bone density of the forearm. And that's because the bone in the forearm is particularly susceptible to becoming weaker if uh, the PTH levels are high. The final point I just want to make is trying to find the gland with ultrasound or a CT scan is really only needed if you are planning on pursuing surgery. Localizing the gland really just helps guide the surgeon when it comes time to go to bring the patient to the operating room. Earlier, you had mentioned that primary hyperparathyroidism is often picked up incidentally. Uh, so somebody who has a high calcium that then prompted a, a full workup or this condition. How should those patients be managed if they have no symptoms? You're totally right. And the uh, one caveat to that is that it can be tricky to define asymptomatic. If patients have very high calcium levels and their symptoms are severe, it's easy to recognize the symptoms. But some of the symptoms are pretty subtle, things like fatigue. Maybe most of us are fatigued. And is that due to the high calcium or is it due to other lifestyle factors? So with vague symptoms, uh, one might consider referring the patient for surgery as long as the surgeon is someone who has done a lot of these procedures and have very low rates of complications. But if the patient is truly asymptomatic, then it's totally reasonable to simply observe the patient and monitor the calciums on a regular basis, often every six to 12 months. But about a third of those patients that are being observed will progress, meaning that their calcium will increase. And most patients will actually see that their bone density drops over time if they're untreated. As a result of that, we do have some criteria that might prompt us to recommend surgery, even in a patient who is asymptomatic. So that includes if the calcium is really high, if it's more than one milligram per deciliter above the upper limit of normal. And that is because those patients actually are probably symptomatic. They usually will feel better once you remove the offending parathyroid gland. Uh, young age, so age less than 50, is another reason to proceed with surgery because you're looking at so many years ahead of you with hypercalcemia and bone effects from the high PTH. If there are established bone effects, so osteoporosis on the bone density or vertebral fractures, then you would also recommend surgery. Or if you see renal effects, either a low GFR or a very high urine calcium together with other risk factors for stones, or if the patient has had other types of imaging that showed asymptomatic stones. So surgery is the um, primary treatment for primary hyperparathyroidism in patients when treatment is indicated. But is there any role for medical therapies in managing primary hyperparathyroidism? The role of medications is actually really limited. If the patient is not a surgical candidate or does not want to proceed with surgery, you could consider a medication. And usually in that case, the one that we choose is called Sinacalcet. It does help lower the calcium levels and uh, the parathyroid hormone levels, but does not actually improve bone strength. So as a second medication, we might also use bisphosphonates to treat osteoporosis. I will also say that uh, there are rare cases of parathyroid carcinoma, and in that case, we would use sinacalcet as part of the treatment. So in patients who do undergo a surgery for primary hyperparathyroidism, what are the possible postoperative complications that a physician should be aware of? Of course, you have to consider just general surgical risks. So the risks of anesthesia, the risks of bleeding and infection. Luckily, those are all very rare. More specific to parathyroid surgery, you need to consider damage to local structures. You can see hoarseness. That's actually pretty common, but is usually very transient. But it could be permanent, and that is related to damage to the recurrent laryngeal nerve in the neck. You can also see low calcium after surgery. And that could be because all of the parathyroid 
tissue was removed or damaged, and so you have hypoparathyroidism. There's often a little bit of a transient hypoparathyroidism that resolves within a few days, but permanent hypoparathyroidism is a consideration and a risk. The other reason for low calcium after parathyroid surgery is hungry bones syndrome, which is where calcium and phosphorus are deposited into the bone very rapidly when the parathyroid hormone levels are brought down from the excessive levels down to more appropriate levels. This is because you have this uncalcified bone due to the effects of PTH in the past that is finally released from the effect of the high PTH. One way to assess whether a patient is at risk for hungry bone syndrome is to look at their alkaline phosphatase level prior to surgery. And if it's very high, then that would be a patient who is at high risk of hungry bone syndrome post-op. And on that, what long-term monitoring is needed following treatment for primary hyperparathyroidism? In terms of the primary hyperparathyroidism itself, if the patient was cured postoperatively, we do measure calcium once a year to look for recurrence. That's pretty rare, but it does happen occasionally. But the second monitoring would be to ensure that any consequences of the hyperparathyroidism is resolving. So that would mean something like a repeat bone density measurement and maybe a repeat urine collection if the patient had very high urine calcium levels. Right. Uh, so that covers our presentation and investigations and management of primary hyperparathyroidism. But what about secondary hyperparathyroidism? How is it different from primary hyperparathyroidism? So primary hyperparathyroidism is when there's a problem with the actual parathyroid itself leading to overactivity. But secondary hyperparathyroidism is when the parathyroid is responding totally appropriately to a threat to the normal calcium level. So for example, uh, patients with vitamin D deficiency or renal failure or inadequate calcium intake or even excess calcium losses into the urine could have a tendency towards developing low calcium levels. Oftentimes, the calcium levels are actually not frankly low, and that is because the parathyroid glands are releasing more parathyroid hormone so that you can restore normal calcemia, but at the price of having a high PTH level. So how then is secondary hyperparathyroidism managed? Typically, you treat the underlying cause. In a patient with vitamin D deficiency, you give them vitamin D. In a patient who has inadequate calcium intake, you give them a calcium supplement or you recommend a high calcium diet. In a patient with malabsorption, you try to treat the cause of the malabsorption, for example. And in uh, one specific condition is chronic kidney disease, which is a complicated condition with a complicated physiology. We initially thought that this was simply due to vitamin D not being activated to calcitriol due to the renal failure, but we have a much more refined understanding of the pathophysiology currently. But it is a more complex condition to manage because we typically cannot reverse the underlying CKD. So we might use a variety of other medications to try to normalize the bone physiology and the calcium physiology in that scenario. So a lot of the physicians and trainees um, might be comfortable with the concepts of primary hyperparathyroidism and secondary hyperparathyroidism, but then tertiary hyperparathyroidism maybe they don't see as often. So could you tell us maybe a bit about that? Right, James. So tertiary hyperparathyroidism is a pretty rare condition. It usually happens in patients who have end-stage renal disease. As a result of their end-stage renal disease, they have secondary hyperparathyroidism, but they have had poor control of their secondary hyperparathyroidism. So they have long-standing uncontrolled secondary hyperparathyroidism. That means that the parathyroid glands have been stimulated over a long period of time 
by the low calcium levels seen in CKD. With ongoing stimulation from low calcium levels, the glands actually become autonomous. And by that I mean that they start to secrete PTH not in response to low calcium levels, but just autonomously. As a result, you end up secreting a lot of PTH, you get very high PTH levels, and as a result of that, you develop hypercalcemia. So tertiary hypoparathyroidism, it is quite analogous in some ways to primary hyperparathyroidism in that there's an abnormality of the parathyroid gland leading to too much PTH release. But the difference is the cause. In tertiary hyperparathyroidism, the cause is prolonged, poorly controlled secondary hyperparathyroidism, while primary hyperparathyroidism is caused, well, we don't quite know why, but sometimes we think there might be some genetic predispositions as well as somatic genetic mutations. The treatment, therefore, ends up being quite similar, actually. The treatment for tertiary hypoparathyroidism is removal of the parathyroid glands, but there is a big difference, which is the size of the parathyroid glands. While in primary hypoparathyroidism, the hyperplastic parathyroid glands or the parathyroid adenomas weigh a few grams, but in tertiary hypoparathyroidism, the glands can weigh hundreds of grams when you take them out. So they are much, much larger in tertiary hypoparathyroidism. Then how is tertiary hyperparathyroidism treated? The treatment usually is surgery at this point. It is fairly similar, similar to primary hyperparathyroidism, except that the parathyroid glands are usually much, much larger. In primary hyperparathyroidism, the glands weigh a few grams while in tertiary hypoparathyroidism, the glands are much larger and might weigh hundreds of grams. You also would try, of course, to prevent the occurrence of tertiary hypoparathyroidism by controlling the secondary hypoparathyroidism, if you can. I guess to summarize, maybe some of the takeaway points would be that primary hyperparathyroidism is probably the most common of the hyperparathyroidisms and would be found either incidentally with high calcium or with symptoms, but the symptoms can maybe be quite nondescript, uh, such as fatigue, as you mentioned, um, and only recognized in retrospect. Um, and the main treatment for primary hyperparathyroidism is surgery for most patients. And secondary hyperparathyroidism tends to be seen in patients with chronic conditions such as chronic kidney disease. Management is actually the management of the underlying condition. And then finally, tertiary hyperparathyroidism is common, usually as a result of long-standing secondary hyperparathyroidism. And the treatment there, again, is surgery also. Thanks, Sophie, for that really interesting overview of hyperparathyroidism, including how it presents the necessary investigations and how it is treated. So that wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. Our production team here at NEGM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Lynn Winston-Perry, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomas, Tim Vining, Scott Williams and Cathy Stern. Special thanks also to our NEGM Education Editor, Dr. O.P. Hamvik, who also joined us today. If you have any feedback, questions or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at resident360 at negm.org. Remember to subscribe to our NEGM social media sites, including Twitter, Instagram and Facebook by the negm.org pages. On behalf of the New England Journal of Medicine, this is James O'Connell signing off.